Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Colossians chapter 4. I'll be finishing up Colossians this morning as we went from verse 1 to the last verse in chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, we'll be looking at verse 12 through verse number 18. And I've been looking at in uh, these messages, the last two messages, the group participation in the gospel mission and or to the gospel mission. And Paul, in these closing arguments or greetings, he mentions 10 people who were in their own right faithful participants of the gospel mission. Now, this means that the church, the body of Christ, each individual believer who was who indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God is called to carry out the unfinished work of Christ. The Lord ascended into heaven, and he gave a mission to his disciples, to his apostles and his disciples, and he really gave them uh, a mission to be continuers of his work that he started. So in the end greeting here in Colossians, it shows the interdependence of believers. Even though we are all insufficient in and of ourselves, but as a body of Christ and by the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God, we can become holy without blemish and blameless before Christ. And in that, when God brings that body together, it becomes a formidable, steadfast force in this world, no matter how dark it gets, for the expansion of the gospel. That human insufficiency, as I mentioned last week, is acknowledged alongside of, in Colossians, the all-sufficiency of Christ Jesus. So all of us, every one of us, we all participate in the gospel mission somehow or another, right? That's what God designed the church to be. So again, we are presented in this passage of Scripture with living examples, real people. And these living examples are imperfect models, but they are models that we can follow because we are all imperfect, and the Lord's making us into the image of Jesus Christ, and we will as we saw last week, really continue to see that the character of these Christians are noteworthy, especially because they come from all walks of life. They're all different kinds of people, Jews, Gentiles, people who uh, are, were in prison, people who are uh, imprisoned, people who are, have all kinds of spiritual gifts and talents God gave them and so we can model ourselves after every one of them. In fact, maybe we see ourselves in one of these people that are mentioned in Paul's greetings. So again, the question that we should ask ourselves is, could such things be said about me and about you that are said about these gospel participants? So far, we looked at two letter carriers, I called them the information squad. The first letter carrier was Tychicus. He was a very strong individual, an individual that was a leader 
trustworthy, taking the information from Paul and bringing it, these letters to the churches of Ephesus and, of course, Colossae. And then, of course, the second letter carrier was Onesimus. He was a runaway slave. He's bringing a letter, too, back to his master with instructions from Paul on what to do. We'll see all that when we get to Philemon. And then we saw, after that, three Jewish supporters. I called them the encouragement squad. Aristarchus was the first one. He was that willing sufferer. Justice, who was that comforter. And then Mark, John Mark, who was useful and then useless and then useful and then, of course, very useful to Paul. He went from being immature to becoming mature. And in the last part of Paul's life, he wanted Timothy, or he wanted uh, Mark right by his side. So the Lord's working on all these people. The Spirit of God is sanctifying all these people as he's doing to us today. And we see Jews and Gentiles working together in the gospel mission. All kinds of people working together for the gospel mission. And so today, we come to the third group, which I call, these are are the Gentile co-workers, which I call the warrior squad. But let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we look at these passages of Scripture, and as we glean from these individuals, how you use them to strengthen the church, to be an encouragement to us, to know, Lord, that some have failed in the beginning, but then you pick them up again, and they grew in Christ-likeness, and they became, they became mature, useful uh, participants of the gospel. Lord, that can be us. And so I pray, Lord, every one of us would come to that place where we desire for the Spirit of God to use us in some way within the body to grow the church, to advance the gospel message. So, Lord, we can pass the baton to the next generation. They can do the same thing, Lord, and right until the day you come back. So I pray, Lord, we be faithful in this task. And thank you, Lord, for the faithful people that you have given us here in our ministry. I pray you continue to bless us with faithful people that will grow in their desire to know the word of God and to become strong soldiers of Christ that cannot be moved one way or another by any kind of false teaching, but is able to stand in the midst, and sometimes stand alone because they know what they believe from the word of God. And I pray this for all of us and for the furtherance of the church of Jesus Christ. And I pray that in Christ's name, amen. So let's look at this third group, the Gentile co-workers, I call them, and I call them the warrior squad, and you'll find out soon why I call them that. And notice... In the first one is in these three Gentile co-workers, we have Epaphras, we have Luke, and we have Demas. I want to deal with each one of them. The first one is Epaphras. He is the hard-working missionary prayer warrior. And if you notice, 
The first thing about Papyrus is that he is a discerning pastor. It looked like a Papyrus, the founder of the church in Laodicea and Heropolis, was the lead elder and pastor of the church at Colossae. He reported to Paul about the bothering circumstances at the church, like the false ideas and the false teaching that were being dispersed among the believers in Colossae. And Epaphras most likely sensed that an apostle needed to be confronted and brought this information of this one false teacher and his teaching that was really upsetting the churches, especially the church at Colossae. So Epaphras most likely felt unprepared to take him uh, take this on himself, so he brought the information to, to Paul. But to be able to do that, he had to be able to at- articulate to Paul what exactly was going on and what was being taught. And that's what he did. He brought to Paul the circumstances and the information that Paul needed so Paul can respond in the epistle of Colossians and the epistle of Ephesians in the right manner. So that's what Paul exactly does when he's writing to Colossians. And he gives really a threefold intention from the book of Colossians. He first wanted to establish a rapport with the Colossian believers and expresses his pastoral concern for their spiritual health and well-being. And why did Paul want to do that? Because Paul never visited Colossians, the Colossian church, and neither did he have any part in founding it. Papyrus was his main connection to, to this church. And this included to strengthen and to confirm their adherence to the gospel that they had already received. And that's why if you look at verse number, chapter 1, verse number 4, you see these kind of phrases in chapter 1, verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ and the love which you have for all the saints. And then in chapter 1, verse number 8, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So this is information coming to Paul, and he's getting it right from the one who was part of the Colossian church and realized and understood everything that was going on. And so he is interested in them. He is interested in the true gospel amongst them. Another thing that Paul got information about is how to counteract the clever false teaching that had arisen in the church and confused the believers. The false teacher and those who follow him were claiming for themselves an unusual degree of knowledge and learning and insight. In fact, the false teachers had a most complicated system. Most false teaching is complicated. Try to unravel many of it. It's got a lot of ins and outs, a lot of doors to open, a lot of things to figure out. And it even leads into mysticism where you really never do figure it out. So when you put complicated false teaching alongside the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ seems awful clear and much more simple. 
So they were teaching these false teachers that between man and God, there was this whole series of angelic beings who acted as in-betweens between God and men. And if men and women wanted to have a common, uh, any kind of communion with God, they had to go from one of these to the next, to the next, to the next. And on top of the, the list was Jesus, who was the highest go between, between man and God. And so that was the, the, the false teaching in a nutshell. So Paul had to be able to refute that, and that's what he does in the epistle to the Colossians. And of course, then, a third thing that he got information to be able to write about is to warn the believers in Colossae about the several wrong-headed approaches to the Christian life and ministry that were the result of false teaching. False teaching will always lead to false practice. And true teaching from the word of God will always lead to correct thinking and behavior. And so that's why when you read through Colossians, what do you read? You read things like this in chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. You read things like in chapter 2, verse 16, therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food and drink and in respect to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath day. And then again in chapter 2, verse number 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize, delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking uh, his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So that's the false teacher. And he's saying, don't let these things capture you. And why is that? Because they give an appearance of wisdom, but they have no value to overcome fleshly indulgence. Only true teaching can give you the ability to say no to your sin and no to the indulgence and the temptations that will come to your flesh because you want to please the Lord, plus you have the Spirit of God living in you and you have the Word of God to tell you what are the things that please the Lord and what are the things that do not please the Lord. So you see the first thing about Epaphras, he was a discerning pastor, able to bring information to Paul so Paul can write Colossians. And then secondly, Epaphras was a fighting prayer pastor. If you notice in, in chapter 4, verse number 12, it says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in, your, in his prayers. In other words, he is the, the word, therefore, to always labor earnestly is the word we get, uh, the Greek word agonizomai, which is to agonize in your prayers, to fight in your prayers, to struggle in your prayers. Do you ever sense that when you are praying, that it is a battle, it is a struggle to do that because you are, we are struggling for biblical truth. We are struggling that it would dispel doubts in Christ's disciples. We are struggling in prayer 
for one another. And so what does he wrestle for in his prayers on behalf of the saints? Well, the scripture tells us what he's wrestling for. It says here that you may stand perfect, complete, and mature. In other words, wrestling for their spiritual maturity. That's what he's wrestling for. And we should be wrestling for each other, that we would all grow and become spiritually strong. And then another thing he's wrestling for, and, and why do we, why are, why does he pray this way so we would stand? So that no false teaching is going to come along and push you around or cause doubts in your mind because you know where to go in Scripture to know that's not the right way to look at things or understand things. This is because I see it right in Scripture. I can read it myself. And then he wrestles for their full discernment in the will of God in, in verse number 12, that you may stand fully assured uh, in all the will of God. And that's what we want to be assured of. We want to be assured of in our life the will of God. What is God's will for you? What is God's will for me? That when Paul mentions in Romans chapter 12, that we are to give ourselves over to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And so what? That we would not be conformed to the world, but we would be transformed in the renewing of our mind that we would know the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. And it's found in the word of God. We prayed this morning, God's will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. Well, we're actually putting into practice this morning the will of God. You're here because it's God's will for you to be here. We're looking at the word of God because it's God's will for us to be preaching the verses and the words in Scripture so we can all grow and understand what God has done. That's God's will. If we lay aside the word of God or if we don't preach the word of God, then we're not doing the will of God. We're out of the will of God. And if we're not taking what we're hearing and understanding it and meditating upon it and practicing it, then we're not doing the will of God. We're not being pleasing to the Lord. You know, I, I thought when, when I was reading this, maybe the Apostle Paul learned how to pray from a papyrus. Maybe that was his example, but of course, maybe they taught each other. Because if you go back to chapter 1 of Colossians, verse number 9, Paul's prayer is very similar to what Epaphras prays. It says, for this reason also, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So, with all... Bible-based facts and information about the knowledge of God's will, you and I become enabled to take all the information and the facts that we learn from the Word of God and actually be useful with them and joyfully construct in our life from the knowledge of the Word of God a life that pleases 
God, a life that learns how to overcome sin, a life that learns how to minister and use our spiritual gifts. That's what we learn. He enables you and I to reach the goal of being filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And that is the goal for Paul's prayers, and that's the goal for Epaphras' prayers. Because even as we read in chapter 1, verse number 10, so that you may, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So to have a true knowledge of God is to grow in a personal and intimate knowledge where God is real to you and you are conscious of his presence every single day of your life. You wake up and your mind immediately goes to the, con to the presence of the Lord in your life. He knows all that's going on in your life. He knows what you're doing in your life. And to know a person means something beyond a casual acquaintance. Knowledge means an intimate, personal, and special knowledge of God the Father that comes from an understanding and of Scripture and being familiar with the Scripture. So as a Christian takes in the truth, both understanding and heart are expanded and moral power is multiplied. And, being, and that means we begin to bear fruit that really accomplishes more of the knowledge of the word of God. So the Christian grows by knowledge and only a steady diet of spiritual food from the word of God will continue this growth. As soon as you lay the, the word of God aside, as soon as you back away from it, you stop growing because that's your spir spiritual food. If you decided that I'm not going to eat any food for a month, well, you would have problems. Right, you would have problems. And uh, the same thing with the Word of God. If you decide whatever reasons or even circumstances pull you away from the Word of God, don't let it do that. To be disciplined, to be in the Word every day, to be reading it every day, to be faithful in listening to the Word of God and then meditating upon the Word of God will always grow you. It will make you strong. And as you continue to grow, you will mature more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That is the goal of the Spirit of God. One commentator said this, which I agree with. He said, the price tag of making mature, focused disciples of Christ is the agonizing labor of prayer. But I don't think we always put emphasis on prayer that we should we kind of like take it or leave it and I'm talking about corporate prayer too where we're meeting together to pray is not this a prayer request for all of us that we would grow in this way as we pray for one another so this is the kind of man he was to pray for his people because he was fighting against false teachers. He was fighting for the truth. He was fighting for the maturity in prayer before God. 
That means something. That means that he believed that much of the work of ministry is accomplished in prayer. I think we ought to believe that. I, I believe that's the example that we can take from at least him this morning because in verse number 12 of chapter 4, he was also a deeply pained pastor. For it says, for I testify, verse number 13, for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Deep concern. You know that this word deep concern, it's, it's really this word is used three times in the New Testament. This here and twice in Revelation. In Revelation, it is translated pain. To have, of course, in Colossians, it's more like he had a hard, in prayer, he was, it was hard, it was exhaustive work, and it produced stress because of what he's praying for. His exhaustive work for the people was in his prayers. Didn't James say the same thing, that the effectual prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much? How much doesn't get done when we don't pray? But things get done that we can never do in prayer. And God takes care of things in prayer because we're seeking his face. We're agonizing before him. We're bringing our requests, our petitions, our intercessions before God. That's what we're doing. And believe me, when we do that, you can see how Epaphras was a true soldier of the gospel mission by just the way he lived and how he thought and how he prayed. We need prayer warriors in the church. We need people who are going to bring things before the Lord every day. We need people to pray. I need people to pray for me. You need people to pray for you. So we can take that example from this man here this morning. But that leads me to the next person in our passage, and that's in verse number 14, and that's Luke. Now, if you notice, it only says Luke, the, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. I believe this is the only place that it tells us that Luke was a physician. A physician. Now, we know that Luke was right there with Paul through most of his ministry, he was there through the thick and thin, through the ups and downs, through the good and the bad, through the dangers and the attacks of Satan. And at the same time, while experiencing God's grace and mercy to protect and deliver his servants in difficult ministry. Luke was there, in other words, on normal days, and he was there also on miraculous days. And Luke reminded Paul often, and Luke also remained with Paul right to the end. And so he reminded Paul of uh, and came alongside Paul to be an encouragement to him. So he was a physician. Now you, you see that when you're reading uh, the book of Acts. You'll, you'll find that he, he comes up with very medical terms. He calls things uh, uh, dysentery and, um, and things like that. He mentions diseases because he's writing the book of Acts. Also, he was a faithful companion, Philemon, 
chapter 1, verse 24, it says, As do Mark and Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow worker, in Philemon. So we see here that he accompanied Paul, and he was a traveling companion, mostly on his second and third missionary journeys. And we cannot whatsoever miss that Luke, most of all, was a historian. He was a biblical historian. And if you turn your Bibles, and I'd like you to do that, to Luke chapter 1, you'll find here that he had a threefold method in his gathering information. It says in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, he also, first thing he does is he gets sources. It says, insomuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, in verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So what does he do as a historian? He gets eyewitnesses from the beginning. And then he gets servants, not just anybody, servants of the word of God, people that were in the work. And he gets their information from them. And then notice in, in verse number three, there's a method he uses in as uh, being a historian, it says, it seemed fitting for me, in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, for me as, uh, uh, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. So in other words, that he gave careful investigation to write out everything carefully and consecutive order. Isn't that the kind of historian you want? To make sure that he gets all the facts right? And he looks at them, he analyzes them, and he gets them, and then he writes them down. You know what? We have the book of Acts today because of Luke. And it just encourages us to know that if this was the kind of historian he was, then the Bible that I read is accurate. Because that's who God picked to be able to write the book of Acts, which is a, uh, remember the book of Acts is a, is a history book. It's a history of the church. And that all means that pure history has a purpose. It is a d demonstration of God's intervention in history. And the meaning of history is in God's work. God reaching down into the mass of fallen humanity and saving some hell-bent men and women and bringing them into the new fellowship called the church and beginning to work in them in such a way that they would bring glory to God and Jesus Christ. That means that Luke, the physician, the faithful worker, the accurate historian, the author of the book of Acts, does not merely give us a history of the early church. He tells us that there is a plan to history. God is unfolding history. He is in control of it. But you know what? Today, today, the church is being recreated in many different ways in diverse, by diverse groups. And those groups are deciding on their own what the Christian church is. 
They are, they are deciding what the church ought to be with the mindset that divorces itself from the past and often from Scripture itself. In other words, they are saying, we don't really care what happened 2,000 years ago. But if that is where they start, they will just add to the confusion and the bewilderment already present concerning the Christian church today. In fact, they will never find out what the church is or what Christianity is all about, and that it's a very slippery slope to an atmosphere already of no hope. Christianity is a historical faith. Therefore, it must not be divorced from history, even though today history doesn't seem to be a very big thing, even in our, our own country, our own history here in the United States. It gets pushed aside. In fact, the common dictionary definition of history is that it's a chronological record of significant events, usually including an ex explanation of their causes. Or history is indeed a little more than the register of crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind. But, but, but when one develops a biblical perspective of history, they find themselves concluding that the Bible emphasizes history as events relating to the acts of God and to the acts of men rather than history as documents and research or reconstruction. In other words, history is his story. The hand of God in the dealing of fallen men. You know, we read Isaiah 46 this morning, and the reason why I had that read is because in that chapter, we get information about the biblical view of history. For example, in that chapter, without going there, we find that history is really rooted in God's eternal sovereign decree, where it says in Isaiah, remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there's no other I am God, and there is no one like me. Also, history is linear. It has a beginning, and it has an end. Biblical history is not secular. It's linear. What does it say in Isaiah 46.10? It says, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that have not been done. So history is a story with a well-defined plot. It begins with creation, and it ends with the consummation of the ages. Who picks this up? Peter picks it up. John in Revelation picks it up. For Peter says this, the apostle Peter, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And then you read Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And I heard the loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and I will, be, I will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Then I said, 
he said to me, I am, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. See, the Bible teaches that biblical history is linear. It's heading somewhere. That means time flows into eternity, never to return again. But history is also theological. It has a design. It has a purpose. Isaiah 46, I have planned it. Surely I will do it, the Bible says. And then, of course, later on in the last chapter of Isaiah, we find out that history is also doctrinal. Doxological, it glorifies God, for it says in Isaiah 66, 19, and they will declare my glory among the nations. So if you want to know what is our hope, you must go back to the very beginning and rediscover how the church started and what she did. You must stand on the authority of the word of God to find out the origin of the church and the phenomena of Christianity. It's like no other category of religion. It is so completely different from every other standard that is out there. So that means that the book of Acts, written by Luke, is the acts of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit and it may be more accurately called the acts of the Holy Spirit who worked through people to advance the gospel mission. So in the book of Acts, we have an accurate history of the establishment of the church, of the extension of the church, of the expansion of the church. So that we see that Luke is an essential team member in the group of faithful participants in the gospel mission. Do you realize that if we didn't have the book of Acts, we wouldn't know where to go? We wouldn't know what to do. We wouldn't know how it happened. So thank the Lord for someone like Luke with this kind of personality, with this kind of exactness with this kind of desire to want to get it right. So if he gets it right and he puts it in print and he puts it in God's word as God had him to do, today, all these years later, we can know this is exactly what happened and be confident of it because of who he chose to do it. Well, that brings us back to Colossians chapter 4, and we look at a third person, and that's Demas. I call Demas the useful to the useless. And if you notice what it says here, it says, and also Demas, verse 14, sends you greetings. It was a fellow worker. He was a fellow worker. Epaphras, it, to- it tells us also in Philemon chapter 1, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow worker. So during the composition of this letter, Demas appears to be in good standing with the apostle Paul and with the church. He was a a fellow co-worker. But mark this on your calendar. 
love is risky and relationships can be complicated and there are no guarantees that people will not disappoint you. There are no guarantees. Demas is one of those people. He went from being faithful to being faithless. We say, well, how do you know that, Pastor Bobby? Well, because I want you to turn your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 10. And we see here that the real love of Demas' heart's heart came to the surface. And I believe Paul recorded with great discouragement his report about Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 10. Look at what he says. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans have gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. So what's happening here is, and you've heard the saying, what you love you will do. Now you say, well, what really happened to him? Well, the Bible really does tell us what happened to him. His love was not the work. His love was not the, the Lord. His love was this present world, the present world that he lived in. In fact, if you go to other places in Scripture, you say, well, whatever ha happened to him, did he just walk away and maybe came back? Well, we, we hear nothing else after this. All you have to do is go through a few Scriptures. What does it say in James 4? 4? Listen, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility with God. And whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now I ask you the question, if the love of the Father is not in somebody, then where are they spiritually? Are they a believer? Doesn't sound like. It, it sounds like they have forsaken what they know. Matter of fact, the idea of world includes man in rebellion, especially men hostile to God. Also, it includes a way of life, especially a way of life opposed to the purposes of God. The world system involves the the values and the pleasures and the pastimes and the aspirations of the world. It didn't, doesn't just say there that he just went into the world and did his own thing. It said he loved it. His heart was there in it. So people that love the world are in rebellion to God. They don't know him. Actually, 1 John 3, 1 goes even further. It says, see how great the love, a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are for this reason. The world does not know us because it did not know him. And then 1 John 
2, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, all these view the world system in a self-sufficient independence of God and a willful opposition to God coupled with a disregard of the judgments of God, the standard of God, and, yes, the very existence of God. I can live my life the way I want it, and I'll love and pursue what I want. People who love the world do not love the Father. And if you don't love the Father, you don't love the Son. And if you don't love the Father and the Son, you don't have the Spirit. So you conclude where Demas ended up. Demas did slip. He lost enthusiasm. He failed in the faith. He left the battlefield for the glitter of the world. That's what he did. He started out strong, but crashed and burned in the end. We don't want to end up like that. But when people walk away, and they give them really no reason or purpose why they walk away and they don't come back? I don't know. It's a sad story. We all know people like that. But it's sad. It breaks my heart to see people walk away. Like, like where have you been? Have you been learning anything? Has it been getting down into your heart? No, some people just walk away. To their own their own soul destruction. Well, let me finish up. The last couple people I'll not spend a lot of time on, but two local Christians. Colossians chapter 4, verse 15 through 17. I call this the hospitality and future ministry squad. And the first one is... In verse number 15, it says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Numphus or Numpha. And the church that, if you notice there, it says in her home. If you have a ESV, if you have a New American Standard, if you have a King James, it doesn't say her. It says his, him. That means something happened. It, it, it looks like uh, in the New Testament manuscripts, the New Testament manuscript evidence were divided on whether this is a feminine or a masculine, a masculine noun. And the difference being that only an accent mark really would change it, which were not included in the earliest manuscripts. So it's easy to make the mistake, but that's not the point, whether it's a her or him. The point is, this person was hospitable in character to the point they were willing to use their home to have a church meet there. And believe me, a home had to be big enough to be able to fit people there, right? And you have to realize if people are coming to your home, even today when you have like 20 cars all of a sudden show up at your, in front of your house, people are saying, hey, what's going on here? You know, what's going on over there? Well, you think that didn't happen back then? When there was all these people all of a sudden in your house? And you know they were hostile to the gospel. So there's a certain level of danger, too, to have people come to your home. And so here, 
this particular person, whether it was a he or she, is a person who had the means that God gave them, mostly wealthy enough to be able to use their home for gospel mission. So see, you can see that this is the hospitality squad. And then the last person, Archippus, I call him the, well, the substitute upcoming pastor. Most likely, Archippus took Epaphras' place. When Epaphras went to tell Paul what's going on, he kind of took over there in the church. Now, he probably was Philemon's son uh, and, of course, pastored uh, probably there and in the region. He probably even had something to do with Herapolis and and the other places mentioned there, where it says in verse 17, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. That sounds like a mild warning. It could be just a push, a prod. Come on, Archippus, get in there. Ministry is not easy. It's not easy. Go in there and do what God called you to do. Don't quit, but, but, but fulfill the def, definite purpose God called you for. Now, the thing is, is that we know that he wasn't a sloppy. And why do we know that? Because it, what it says in Philemon chapter 1, verse number 2. You know what it says about this individual, Archippus? It says, and Apia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So we know that he was no pushover. He was a strong individual, but even strong individuals need a little push sometimes when they see things are getting tough and it's not as easy as I thought it would be. You know, when young guys come to me and say, Pastor, if this doesn't work out, I'm going to go into the ministry. I said, you better hope that other thing works out. Because you don't want to go into the ministry unless God called you there, right? Because it is no easy place. You know, some people say, well, Pastor, like, now how did you stay so long? How do you just, I tell them I quit every Monday. And Tuesday I'm back at my office, back studying the word of God. It's really the word of God that I think I sit there and say, I have the privilege to study the word of God. Dave and I have the privilege to study the word of God, you know, and make that in the sense of living out of that. I, that's, there's no higher calling. Where, where am I going to go? You know, where, where do you go when you're, when you're at that point? To me, it's one of the highest callings that anybody could be called for. I take it very seriously. I always have. But it's no easy place. And I think if anybody who, uh, any young man who desires at all to go into the ministry has to be, really be counseled that that's where he ought to be. I was in seminary with guys who dropped out left and right because they shouldn't have been there. You know, I could have sat down with some of those guys in five minutes and say, you, know, you need to go somewhere else. You're not going to be able to handle this. And, um, but thank the Lord, he, he does call young men. He does gift young men. And, uh, and yet sometimes we need a 
a push. And we need to be prodded to go and, and fulfill the ministry God gave you to do. So this, this final observation in Colossians is, is that we have all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, from all walks of life and all backgrounds, closely interacting with, with uh, specific God-given gifts and talents, working hard for a common goal to faithfully participate in the gospel mission and to carry out the unfinished work of Christ. That's all our jobs. No matter who you are, if you're a believer, you're part of that. And that's why even in our, our, our prayer time on Wednesday, we pray for our ministries. And uh, Dave, Pastor Dave put the ministries in there. And, you know, like ministry... All the people involved in our church and ministry, we have the adult Sunday school, we have the, the, the teen Sunday school, we have the children's Sunday school, we have the membership class, the greeter ministry, the kitchen ministry, the nursery ministry, the worship team, the audiovisual team, the security team, the decoration team, the finance team, the administration team, the book nook, the lending library, the nursing home, the Iron Man ministry, the side-by-side woman's ministry, the Zoom ministry, young adult ministry biblical counseling ministry, and mall evangelists, and I probably missed something. See, all those things are designed and for us to, to do what? To faithfully participate any way we can in the gospel ministry. I should include the Zoom prayer, too, in that. So we're all needed. In other words, we're all needed to fulfill our ministries through Jesus Christ. There's, there's really no, well... Uh, I'm, I'm taking a break now. Um, no, there's, and I can't do it right now. Do something. Do something to be part of this commission that God's given to all of us. So what squad are you going to be part of? Are you going to be part of the information squad? Accurately dispelling information properly to people? Are you going to be part of the encouragement squad, coming along people to comfort them? to prod them, to, to lift them up? Are you going to become the person who goes from immaturity to maturity because you are growing in Christ Jesus? Are you going to be part of the warrior squad? God's grown you to be a warfare operator in the church. And that means you pray, agonizing prayer. And you're not going to be like Demas who stepped aside and, and be a, a discouragement to not only Paul, but everybody who reads that passage. And say to yourself, I don't want to be that person. Or maybe you are part of the Hospitality Future Ministry Squad. That you are willing to open up your home, you are willing to be hospitable any way you can, for the encouragement of the church, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so what is the overall goal from Colossians for these things? Well, we already mentioned that in the Word of God in Colossians 1, verse 27, 28, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him. 
that's Jesus Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ, mature in Christ. That is the goal. So the last verse, of course, in Colossians is Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. To think that Paul got all that work done in prison. And he won many people to the Lord there in prison. It's just that no man could do that unless God calls him to do that gifts him to do that, gives him his spirit and the word of God to do that. And when he does that, then he fulfills his ministry. And Paul can go to the chopping block, have his head cut off, and be fine with it. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? And only truth could do that. Only God's word could do that. So I, I pray this morning you just be encouraged to be used by God in whatever opportunity, circumstance, gifts, talents God's given you and just use them for the edification of the body and the building up of the church and the advancement of this gospel mission that we're all called to. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again. You have been so faithful to us, Lord. Even, Lord, the very fact that we have the word of God, all the word of God in our hand right now, we don't have to wonder about anything. We may not understand everything, but, Lord, it's all here in Scripture, all that you've done, all that you will do, knowing that history is linear. It's all heading somewhere. It all has a purpose. And just to think, in this day, we are part of that purpose. Our church ministry in New Jersey, in Somerset, in East Millstone, is part of your purpose. It's amazing to know that, and it is exciting to know that is the case. And so, Lord, continue to grow us, bless us, protect us. Continue to make us like you. So, Lord, we can be useful and profitable for you in ministry. And whatever you've given us to do, do it faithfully. And I pray this this morning in Christ's name. Amen.